Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing guided loving-kindness meditation. This is part of our group learning program where we meet right here on Sunday and Wednesday to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. In this program on Sundays, we cover a chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And on Wednesday, we do typically breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation as a way to encourage each other, support each other, further our practice along and kind of helping to motivate us in our meditation practice. Because this is an independent journey with meditation. We need to independently do the work to learn, to reflect and practice these teachings. But we're also part of this community of practitioners where we can come together to support, encourage, and motivate each other. And here on Wednesdays, this is a place where you can come to do meditation together as a group and also use kind of the time after meditation to ask any questions that you have related to your practice, related to your meditation practice, related to anything that you're learning, anything that you're challenged with, anything that you're struggling with. We just have an open freeform questions about any topics that you would like to discuss as a way to help strengthen you and develop you in your practice. But it all comes down to you seeking guidance and deciding what things you need to learn because a teacher is here to provide guidance, but it's up to each individual student or practitioner to choose to ask questions and seek guidance. You need to have a real clear understanding about the things that you're studying, the things that you're pursuing, what are you working on in the next few days or the next few weeks, and where is it that you need help from your teacher. And that's why on Sundays and Wednesdays, I make myself available. And then all through the week, of course, with personal guidance sessions and other ways of helping you guys. And on Saturday, we have our Pali Canon in English program where you can learn with the words of the Buddha and study his actual teachings in the Pali Canon. The loving kindness meditation that we do, it's based on these rings, that we create these rings where we develop in the mind and cultivate in the mind this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. This is how you transform the mind from anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions of that, you know, any kind of aggression or hostility or frustration or irritation or resentment, even jealousy a lot of times can be really helped through loving kindness meditation. This is a way to, to cultivate in your mind this active goodwill, 
this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful so that then in daily life you can practice loving kindness with all beings around you. Because if we are angry and hateful and have ill will and we have that come out through our intentions, our speech and our actions, it's going to affect the people around us. It's going to cause harm. So therefore that harm is going to come back to us through us putting out anger, hatred, and ill will, it's going to come back to us in the relationships that we have and interacting with other people. So it's only when we focus on our practice and improving the condition of our mind, eliminating this poison of anger, hatred, and ill will, that we can then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this enlightened mental state where we're able to interact with all beings in a very peaceful and calm way. This is going to help improve your relationships. So we're going to be doing this meditation where we're starting with I, you'll hear me say these affirmations. And when you hear that, just repeat it in your mind. There's gonna be four statements. May I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be well, and may I be free of all discontentedness. And then I'll move out in successive rings kind of creating some rings that are appropriate for all of us to be meditating together. But when you meditate on your own, you should construct these rings based on your own individual life and the people that you have challenges with. And if you have anger, hatred, ill will for any people or any groups of people, you should include them in your meditation so that you can transform the mind over multiple sessions to not have this anger, hatred, and ill will but instead loving kindness and compassion and be able to practice that in daily life. Prior to the loving kindness meditation, I will lead you guys into breathing mindfulness meditation just to kind of prepare the mind. After loving kindness meditation, we'll do a little bit more breathing mindfulness meditation and then come out and then that's where we'll open up for any questions that you guys have. So, Welcome, really pleased that you're here, whether you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, or any of the other platforms that we stream out to. Really pleased that you've decided that the Buddhist teachings are something that's important for your life because as you learn and practice these teachings, it's going to only improve the condition of your mind and the condition of your life, which means that you're doing the very best thing you could ever do for this world, which is reduce any kind of harmful intention, speech, and actions, and other things that you're putting out into the world, by you focusing on your own practice, you're now going to be causing less harm in the world, which makes this world a more peaceful, loving, and kinder place for all of us. So thank you all. If you would like to pull up a cushion, or if you're in a chair, or wherever you're at, just make the lower body comfortable. It doesn't need to be painful or luxurious, just comfortable and stable. If you're in a chair, maybe your ankles are crossed or your feet are flat on the floor. If you're on the floor, you might just put some cushions or pillows under your rear to lessen the angle at your hip and your knee and your ankles. This will help to relax the body, but you want to keep the upper body attentive and alert. This is going to help the mind stay attentive and alert. So by keeping the muscles in the spine, the core of the body erect, this is going to ensure that the mind is active and attentive during meditation. One of the misunderstandings of meditation 
is that meditation should be to relax the mind or calm the mind. In fact, what we're really doing in meditation is a lot of work. There's a lot of work in meditation. The calmness and the relaxation comes in later after you're done meditating because if you develop the qualities of mind during meditation that you need, which are right mindfulness and right concentration while eliminating craving, desire, and attachment, if you're doing that work in meditation, surely the mind can become calm and peaceful and relaxed. But during meditation, the mind should be active, attentive, alert, should be doing the work, you should be applying the effort. And that's your practice, not just kind of zoning off in la la land with daydreaming, but instead really doing the work to cultivate the qualities of mind that you're looking to cultivate and eliminate the certain qualities that you're looking to eliminate. So with this breathing mindfulness meditation, we're going to be eliminating craving, desire, attachment, while cultivating awareness of mind or mindfulness. During loving kindness meditation, we're going to be eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will while cultivating loving kindness or active goodwill towards all beings. This requires work. So be sure you stay attentive and alert during your meditation by maintaining your upper body in an erect position. Your hands and arms should be just comfortable in your lap. The Buddha put right hand over left with his thumbs together. So if that works for you, you can use that or just put your palms on your thighs or your knees or the armrests of a chair. Then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. You would like to just establish a nice natural breath. Breathing in. In, out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up with the guidance that I'm giving. This is just a reminder for you because this is your practice, your effort. But what you'd like to do is take a nice, gradual, steady breath, breathing in through the nose, experiencing the full breath, the full inhale slow and gradual. When you get to the top of that, then a nice gradual exhale through the nose. Breathing in and out. Next, we're going to do some chanting just to ease the mind into meditation. And then I'll be back with some more guidance. If you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along. Sang 
consistent breath, breathing in, experiencing the full breath, maybe a little pause at the top as you transition into the exhale, nice, slow, and gradual. with a little bit of pause at the bottom as you transition back to the inhale. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in in. 
Start focusing the mind on the breath. The sound of the breath entering into the nose or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This breath is the present moment. Train the mind to fixate on the breath. Breathing in. And out. Anytime you observe with mindfulness, awareness of mind, that the mind is not on the breath, apply right effort, cut that off, let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath. Breathing in and out. When the mind is in the past or the future, that's the mind longing, it's yearning. That's the craving, desire, attachment. The mental longing with a strong eagerness. So where you observe that, you cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in. And out. If there's thoughts, ideas, or perceptions, that's that same craving, desire, attachment. The mind's longing, its yearning, has a strong eagerness to be somewhere else other than the present moment. Cut that off and let it go. Come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to let you do this work now so that your mind doesn't even get fixated to the sound of this voice. Instead, focus on the breath. And wherever it's not there, just cut that off and let it go. Coming back to the breath. Breathing in. And out.
Repeat this affirmation in the mind on the out-breath. Whenever you get to your out-breath, just repeat this in the mind. May I be peaceful. May I be well. May I be safe. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May we be peaceful. May we be safe. May we be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. May my mother and father be peaceful.
May they be well. Be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. brothers and sisters be peaceful safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. husband or partner be peaceful.
may they be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. children be peaceful. be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. extended family, friends, co-workers, associates, be peaceful.
may they be safe. free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. beings, no matter where they reside, whether I know them or will never know them ever in this life or some other life, may they all be peaceful. safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Return back to breathing mindfulness meditation. Focus on the breath. Breathing in. In, out.
to slowly come out of meditation. In these meditations, when I'm using different affirmations and phrases that don't necessarily apply to you, if you don't have a partner, or if you don't have children, you can always substitute a different being in there. So if someone doesn't have children, but they have pets and they consider their pets to be their children, then you can put them in there. Or if you don't have a partner, and you're not interested in that and you don't have one currently, you could put past partners that maybe you're holding any kind of anger towards. Or you could put your friends or other people in there as well. So I try to create something that applies to pretty much everybody, but you know, with so many different diverse backgrounds, there's gonna be times where you might need to uh, put a different being in there than other than what I'm sharing in the affirmation. So let's go ahead and open things up to any questions that you guys have. 
If you would like to ask a question about anything related to meditation, loving kindness, or breathing mindfulness meditation, or even the meditation that I teach on non-self and the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings, or if there's any questions you have on fears or the three poisons or the eightfold path or anything that we've been talking about or anything related to your practice at all, all you need to do is put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any question or follow-up questions directly. Hi, David. Connecting loving-kindness meditation to our class from Sunday, would you say that loving-kindness meditation is an effective way to eradicate fear and build trust for other beings? I think it can definitely build trust. In terms of fear, it really comes down to, in terms of meditation, the uh, breathing mindfulness meditation. Unless there's certain beings that, like I mentioned, like at one time my mind was conditioned that someone with a tattoo, I should fear. And, you know, if the fear hasn't been released and the conditioning hasn't released, you could put them into your loving kindness meditation. But this is really to transform anger, hatred and ill will as opposed to the discontentedness of fear, which gets eradicated through meditation with breathing mindfulness, meditation, generosity, and then the techniques that I taught on Sunday in terms of confronting any fears. Okay, and I was wondering, is there any significance to saying the ring in which we say during loving kindness meditation on the out breath? I'd like to do it on the out breath because I've, I've often envisioned kind of like a syrup coming over the body, kind of enveloping the body when I'm saying, may I be peaceful and the, going through that. Or if I create other rings, I think about kind of like my breath as like a syrup kind of enveloping the individual or the group of individuals. And it feels better for me to do it that way. If you try it and you like it on the in-breath because you feel like you're drawing in the loving kindness and cultivating it and developing it in your mind, then you can try that and see which way you like best. But I've just always found that on the out breath, it works for me best that way. And as you just pointed out, visualization is an important part of loving kindness meditation, wouldn't you say? It can be, yeah, because, you know, just working with the words and the affirmations, you know, that's usually kind of getting the meditation underway, the first three, five, 10 meditation sessions, you just would like to kind of get established with the affirmations. But then when you start bringing the visualization into it, I feel like it really deepens the practice that if you're having anger, hatred, or ill will towards a certain person or a certain group of people, if you can envision them in the mind and visualize them, I think it really helps to train the mind to let go of any anger, hatred, ill will, and really, you know, kind of smother them in goodwill and loving kindness and compassion. Thank you, David. Let's get a Basim now who has a question. Thanks, James. Uh, actually, I have a question which is not related to meditation, but I, um, I wanted to ask about, uh, it seems that the human mind uses logic in most situations. So if, uh, or when, I meet something I like or I prefer, the mind is interested to have this situation or this person or even this conditioned object uh, forever. So here the mind uses logic. The mind can see that 
the thing is preferable. So I want this forever. Uh, on the other hand, something which I do not prefer, so I'm trying to avoid the situation. So again, here the mind uses logic. Why can't the mind see the impermanent uh, nature in everything? Why is the mind, mm, let's say, most of the time is muddled? If it can use logic, why the mind can't see true reality? Okay, so what you're calling logic, I'll call wisdom. The mind doesn't have the wisdom. It has this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. It doesn't realize that these things are impermanent and it's craving permanence. So it has this ignorance and then there's this craving where it wants things to be permanent because it feels like if it just holds on and it gets permanence, that that's what it is going to take in order for it to be satisfied. But it's a delusion. It's the ignorance of the mind not realizing that these things are impermanent and it can't hold on to these things permanently. So while the mind might understand the universal truth of impermanence intellectually, it's not until a practitioner has deeply soaked it into the mind through reflection and through practice that the mind comes to understand impermanence. And this is why I bring it into conversations frequently. So when Zoom is having trouble or the live streams having trouble, I'll say, oh, there's impermanence. I heard Manal say that on Sunday with Bossom's internet connection. She said, oh, Bossom's having some impermanence. So when you start incorporating it into your language and your thought patterns and you start seeing the impermanence everywhere around you, it gets soaked deeper and deeper and deeper into the mind and you develop what the Buddha calls perception of impermanence, that you just observe that everything and anything pretty much except for unconditioned objects and thoughts and feelings are impermanent. So if you can soak it into the mind when you're walking down the street, you see a crack on the sidewalk, impermanence. You're walking down the street and it's really hot out, but then the clouds cover the sun and it gets a little bit cool, impermanence. The wind is completely non-existent and then the wind starts to blow. Ah, impermanence. Uh, you look at the human body and as it's aging, ah, impermanence. And if you just keep doing that with the mind over and over and over and soaking it into the mind, then it slowly starts to realize that all this stuff is impermanent and it doesn't make sense to hold on to any of it. And what the mind then slowly starts to realize is anytime that it does hold on to something, it causes itself to be discontent. And it's kind of like stabbing yourself with a knife. And the mind starts to realize, I'm not interested in doing that anymore. I've been doing that this whole life. I've been doing that the life before this. And it's just led to constant discontentedness. And now that impermanence is deeply soaked into the mind, and now that you see more and more clearly that you're causing all the discontentedness because the mind's craving permanence, with this gradual training program underway, the mind slowly, slowly lets go, realizing that it would be like stabbing itself with a knife if it latches on to anything and tries to keep anything permanently. But this is a very slow process. You know, you can't learn impermanence one day and release everything the next day. And this is the struggle that people often have on the path because they understand intellectually all these teachings, but yet 
they can't quite practice them 100% yet. And the mind wants to be somewhere that it's not. So the answer to your question, Basim, is, is ignorance and craving. That's why the mind is lacking the wisdom and anything that it sees that's agreeable, it wants to hold on to that permanently because it gets those pleasant feelings. Anything disagreeable, it's repulsed by that and it wants to push it away or have aversion. And this is just being caused by the mind's craving for permanence. It's being caused by the ignorance in the mind. And the antidotes here are generosity to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment with breathing mindfulness meditation, and then wisdom, which is going to antidote the ignorance. Okay, so uh, impermanence, for example, is everywhere, but the mind, when it is unenlightened or modeled or uh, doesn't know true reality, cannot see impermanence, which is really everywhere. So uh, maybe the mind didn't get uh, the required wisdom to understand uh, true reality because it has wrong perceptions. So what is the difference between wisdom and wrong perceptions or between wisdom and assumptions? I'm always having some assumptions which are not true. That's why the mind is still muddled or uh, doesn't know true reality. Yeah, the wrong perceptions are the ignorance, delusion, confusion, unknowing of true reality. That's the wrong perceptions or misperceptions or distortions of reality. So even though intellectually you've known now for a year or more about the universal truth of impermanence, it hasn't been deeply soaked into the mind to be able to practice in a way where you're able to let go. So you've let go of some things and your mind has gained peacefulness in some situations, but in other situations, the mind is still holding on. It hasn't let go yet. And that's why I talk about it as this layering effect, this onion that you're pulling back all these layers. The outer layers of an onion will kind of fluff off pretty easily. But as you work deeper and deeper into the core, the core of the onion is a lot tighter and it's harder to peel apart. So as you get further and further into your practice, the attachments that are still around when you're in that second, third stage of enlightenment are much deeper and they've been held on to the longest. And those are oftentimes very challenging to let go of. And these are typically like mom, dad, life partners, children. Those are usually the ones that are kind of like the hardest ones to let go of for most people. Okay, so uh, one step back. Without knowing about this universal truth, there is no way for the mind to know true reality. So this means that there is no way for all humanity to reach that peacefulness of mind. In my opinion, the Buddhist teachings are the path to enlightenment. While we've got other traditions out there, and there's lots of other teachings that are out there, while they talk about things that are similar, like Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and other traditions talk about nirvana or enlightenment or things like this, I don't know those teachings and I don't understand how they would lead to enlightenment because some of these traditions while they're talking about enlightenment they actually talk about a self and that a self exists 
So based on what I know from the Buddhist teachings and based on what I observed and what I've experienced, I don't see how these other teachings could lead to what we call enlightenment, even though I see some similarities, even though I see a lot of commonalities. I don't see it just because I don't have the experience of getting to enlightenment through Jesus Christ's teachings. And Jesus Christ himself wasn't enlightened, so I don't see how his teachings could lead to enlightenment. When I hear and I watch and I observe other teachers, I'll watch their videos on YouTube sometimes from other traditions. When I hear them talk about enlightenment and some of the very key things that they talk about, about having like a desire for the self, and they talk about that's important to reach to enlightenment. The way that I understand the Buddhist teachings that we need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and we need to eliminate the self. So when I hear somebody say that it's the desire for the self that creates peacefulness in the mind, right away I'm thinking, wow, this doesn't sound like what I would consider the path to enlightenment. But I don't judge that person and I don't say they're wrong and I'm right. I just know what I know and I know what leads to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy based on the Buddhist teachings, and that's what I choose to share. So for me, it's the Buddhist teachings that are the path to enlightenment. And the only way to get to that enlightenment is what you're saying, which is start with the three universal truths. That's the very beginning, to understand those deeply. And without understanding those deeply, and then being able to move them into practice, I don't see how anybody would be able to attain enlightenment because it's these universal truths, it's this natural laws of existence that has led to the results that I've experienced. And I don't know of how to attain that mental state through something like Hinduism or any other tradition. But there might be somebody in those traditions that can explain it very clearly and they're able to discuss it and explain it and guide people to enlightenment through Hinduism or through Jesus Christ teachings or something like that. And they may be very proficient and be able to do that. But I I can't because I didn't experience what I experienced through those teachings. Yeah. Thanks. I was wondering, David, you mentioned soaking impermanence in the mind and would you say that can also increase our appreciation of the everyday life of knowing that our life is impermanent and appreciating it and knowing that the sunlight is impermanent and appreciating it yeah because you know when the mind's going around craving permanence it gets so angry about everything you know it wants things to be its way you know and it's you know come what do we say come hell or high water you know it's just like blazing a path, knocking down trees, burning up the forest. And somebody whose mind is very defiled and very polluted is just having a horrible go at life. And in their mind, it's everyone else's fault. And that's the real unfortunate part of it is that when your mind is so defiled, you don't even realize how defiled your mind is. And you're just blazing fire you're knocking down trees and you're blaming it on everyone else rather than just realizing that hold on a second you have the ability to completely remedy all of this stuff 
and exist in this world with such peacefulness, a peacefulness that you've never even dreamed possible. I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, I always thought about having a more peaceful life and I didn't understand why my life was so difficult and so hectic. And I always kind of dreamed about having a peaceful life, but I never dreamed the level and degree of peacefulness that the mind can experience through learning the Buddhist teachings. I never even thought that that existed. And that's why you can't really 100% explain enlightenment to somebody who's unenlightened and for them to actually understand it in the unenlightened state. The only way that they can truly understand enlightenment is to experience it. As you share the teachings with them and help them see little by little by little what the teachings are, as their mind starts experiencing more and more enlightenment, then they start to understand what enlightenment is. So no matter how much I write in a book, no matter how much I teach about what enlightenment is, people aren't going to understand it until they actually experience it. And this is why the Buddha taught when people would disagree with him or people would say that his teachings you know, weren't what they were, he would say, okay, come investigate, you know, come examine. It's only when you come and look for yourself that you're going to be able to see the teachings clearly. So yeah, you, you can appreciate the peacefulness of the enlightened mind the more and more the mind becomes enlightened. You'll appreciate all things in the world so much more. But it can be a real challenge to get there and a real struggle, especially when the people around you aren't practicing. That can be a real challenge for you. But that's part of your practice is learning how to exist around people who aren't practicing. That's a really important aspect of these teachings is because not everyone's going to be practicing in this world. So if you've got a partner or children or friends or coworkers who aren't practicing these teachings, they're like little teas for you. You're, you're learning something through that experience. And while it's very uncomfortable for your mind to go through it, it, you're actually learning something and they're actually helping you become more enlightened. Because if you have a partner, for example, that's very angry and very aggressive and very hostile and totally opposite of what these teachings are, you're having to train your mind each individual day and each interaction with them to be peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy, even in a situation where somebody is so angered or hostile or aggressive. So you're actually learning a tremendous amount and they're helping you to train your mind without them even realizing it. So when you start looking at it that way, you can stop being so angry with your partner about being so angry <laughs> or and you can just be like, oh, OK, here's an opportunity to practice. They're being hostile. They're being hateful. They're using wrong speech. OK, well, let me kind of, you know, really bring my practice through and figure out how to navigate the situation through these teachings. And you can really appreciate all the things that are going on around you as ways for you to learn and grow and deepen your wisdom. I suppose it's great practice in learning to accept what is because that is simply an element of what is. And if that was different, then there would be another element that the mind may latch onto to become discontent if one is not accepting of what is. Yeah, all the things that are going on around us are all a result of our decisions, every single thing. So if our kids are disrespectful to us, 
that's because of our decisions that we didn't teach them respect growing up and maybe we didn't model it as parents so that they could see it and then we didn't teach it to them or if our partner is very aggressive or one way or another this was our decision to be with this partner so all the things that are around us in our given life our co-workers our house situation our income our finances everything is as a result of our decisions and when you realize that rather than feeling disgruntled and upset that maybe we made some bad decisions in the past instead it's very empowering because if our decisions is what led to where we are today then it's our decisions that will lead us out of where we are today too that we can improve our decision making and through the wisdom of the buddhist teachings we can make wiser and wiser decisions and to me i always found it very empowering that oh my goodness my life is this way because of me and as soon as you realize that it's like wow so if i created all this mess that means i can clean it up it's just a matter of of gaining the right wisdom to clean it up and being patient to allow that wisdom to come into my life and for me to execute decision after decision to clean it up is it accurate to say that the discontent we feel is in some way just an invention of our mind? Did you say a dimension of our mind? An invention almost? Uh, We're essentially creating it? Oh yes, we are absolutely creating the discontentedness. That's our gamma. That's the result of our decisions. Because the mind still has ignorance or unknowing of true reality, it still has craving, desire, attachment. And because of that craving, desire, attachment, we haven't done the work that we needed in order to eliminate the discontentedness. But that's the beauty in this practice is the more that you learn and you work to eradicate it, then you see the results for yourself. So you know you're headed in the right direction. That's why nothing in the Buddhist teachings is based on belief because you can see that three weeks ago, the same thing happened and I was so frustrated. But now, wow, I feel nothing. That's quite liberating. Or three months ago or, or, or six months ago, the same thing happened. And I was so angry and frustrated. But now I feel nothing. I feel so peaceful. And that's how you can see the truth for yourself, that these teachings are leading to liberation of mind. So it's just a matter of continuing to learn, continuing to apply the teachings, staying determined, staying dedicated, staying consistent, staying diligent, where sometimes the mind, why am I discontent now? Well, you already know. So a lot of you that are starting to come to me for guidance that I know you've been studying for a while, what you notice is that I've stopped kind of telling you what's wrong and I've started asking you questions. So sometimes someone will write me that I know has been studying with me for a while and they're like, I'm so sad, you know, today I'm so sad. I don't understand why I'm so sad. Can you help me? So rather than just say, oh, it's craving, desire, attachment, you've got to identify your attachments and that's your red light on your dashboard. And when you identify those, you need to put a plan together to eliminate it. Instead of going through all these things and, you know, explaining everything, I will ask them questions. What causes sadness? And they'll reply back, craving, desire, attachment. Okay, so once you see that sadness as discontentedness and you know it's craving, desire, attachment, what's the next step? So essentially, once somebody has been studying for the length of time that most of you guys have been studying, my role becomes just asking you questions 
so that you can recall the wisdom. Because in that moment, when your mind's shaken up with sadness or is shaken up with anger or frustration, your mind is uncalm. So therefore, you're lacking mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're lacking concentration. So you're not able to access your wisdom. So what I'm doing with the guidance that I give to people after they've been learning for a while is now that they're calm, they're kind of relaxed, I just ask them questions and they can go through and they can see, wow, I do know this. And it's just a matter of them recalling the wisdom and applying it. Because when your mind's shaken up, you're not able to access that wisdom. So that's why it's so important when your mind's shaken up to take some time, relax, take a few hours, a few days, you'll be able to figure it out. But where you have trouble, you reach out to your teacher and ask for help because all of this discontentedness, you can eliminate all of it. Every single problem that you're experiencing in life, you can eliminate all of it. And instead of problems, you're gonna have challenges. And these challenges, you'll be able to apply your calm mind, your mindfulness, your concentration, your wisdom, all of these other steps, and you'll be able to address every single situation that, that occurs. Your mind can just peacefully work through the challenge. Thank you, David. Let's go to Manal now. Hi, teacher, David. So I was wondering about the eight precepts. Uh, you had posted something earlier, much earlier this month, related to that. And you've explained that very well in the post that you made. Um, I just had a question. At what point in a practitioner's uh, teaching or learning of the teaching uh, would this be appropriate to apply uh, the five precepts and then the eight precepts? Um, at what point is this important to apply? Sure. Great question, Manal. So the five precepts should be like brought on board right away at the very beginning of the path. If somebody is starting this path and they're using alcohol and drugs, for example, they got to get that under wraps right away because that's going to hinder so much on this path. Or if they're lying or they're stealing or they're killing or, or sexual misconduct, that's oftentimes like five easy things that you can just dedicate your time to. And before you even jump on the Eightfold Path, for example, if you understand that cleaning up your practice is what you're working towards, really diving in and sinking into the five precepts right away from the beginning is going to significantly reduce any unwholesome results that you're experiencing. So that should be like right at the beginning. The additional precepts, those are going to be by choice. And what I'm thinking about is like the third precept. The third precept changes for the eight precepts. Instead of just not committing sexual misconduct, which is part of the third precept in the five precepts, in the eighth precepts, it becomes abstaining from sex 100%. Now that requires a lot more work. And if you're in a relationship with a partner, it's going to require you to understand their needs and work with them potentially if they're not on the path and interested in the same things you are. So that's really going to be based on your own practice and your own development of deciding you're ready to let go of sexual contact and consulting with your partner in working through their needs as well, because you have to be attentive to that. And then the other ones, you know, when it talks about eating once a day, 
I don't necessarily suggest that a household practitioner needs to do that one. You can actually attain enlightenment without eating just once a day. That's mainly for the ordained practitioners who they don't really have any other responsibilities but to learn and practice these teachings. The Buddha brought that one in for a number of reasons. There's many reasons why he had that. And one of the big reasons is he didn't want to put a burden on the household practitioners to feed the monks three, four, five times a day. So us household practitioners, we have a lot more demands on the physical body and the mind than an ordained practitioner. So we're going to need to eat more than once a day. And even nowadays, ordained practitioners will oftentimes eat twice a day, even though originally the Buddha said once a day. And what some people say is the nutritional value of food during the lifetime of the Buddha is very different than today. So, you know, kind of the calories in a broccoli, for example, were much more significant 2,500 years ago when the water and the soil and the air was more pure than it is today. So a lot of the ordained practitioners even eat twice a day, but they still eat prior to noon. So I don't necessarily suggest that a household practitioner does that one, but you can, you certainly can for a period of time. You will notice naturally that as you practice these teachings more and more, you will start being less and less interested in food. You might notice your interest in food and your intake in food significantly decrease. You'll notice you can go these long periods of time without even feeling hungry anymore. So that's kind of a natural thing. You just eat whenever your body needs food. Don't overeat and don't undereat. Find that middle. The precepts about beautification of the body with jewelry and makeup and scents and things like this. This is when you're starting to work on non-self and you would like to work on non-self. That's when that one comes into play and you should look at that as well as when you're ready to start letting go of sensual desire, the one about singing and dancing and entertainment, this is a good one to start letting go of when you're interested to let go of sensual desire. But the thing is that with these, you can actually let them go for a period of time, train the mind to do without them, and then over time, you can actually eventually bring them back in. So if you've gone like a year or two without music, for example, or without entertainment or these other kind of things, you might slowly selectively bring those things back in, but you'll bring them in in a different way that you probably won't look at watching TV for entertainment. It's more about education and wisdom by that time that if you continue to watch TV, for example, and continue to rely on entertainment, you might just be covering up some boredom and loneliness, and you'll never be able to observe that if you don't kind of purge that from your practice for a period of time, go without it for a long period of time, train the mind to be content and peaceful without it. And then at some point in the future, you might choose to start watching TV again, but it's going to be with a different purpose. It's most likely going to be for educational type things. So those are kind of, I think, the common ones was there any that I left out, Manal, that you were interested in talking about? Yeah, I think um, that you have covered all of them. The question I, that still remains in the mind is of the sixth precept. So it's, just, it's the one that you just mentioned, is training the mind 
to eliminate um, sense desire. So, uh, and if you refer to it as sensual desire in your post, however, um, you continue to uh, talk about the ingesting of food uh, to please the tongue. So it's, a, it's basically a sense desire is how I'm interpreting that. And uh, of dependent origination would be some, is something we learned previously. Um, if you've sort of uh, investigated dependent, something like dependent origination or another um, of Gautama Buddha's teaching, um, that could be very easily applied to um, going further into eliminating some of the taints and the pollution, which um, are present if you review the, 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 the eight precepts here. Um, I mean, I, I feel like there's an overlap in uh, applying uh, teachings um, and, and seeing that some of this, it can be better uh, eliminated with other teachings of Gautam Buddha. So for, in my example, like I said, the, a dependent origination, which is something I'm continuing to work on, um, with, you know, the mind is continuing to work on uh, this uh, particular precept of uh, the sense. Uh, you know, if, if you're, it's something that I uh, find challenging for myself personally. So would you agree that, you know, kind of absorbing teachings from other places can also be one of the um, ways in order to um, go ahead and fully and completely understand the eight precepts. You mean other places in terms of other places within the Buddhist teachings? Correct. So the eight precepts, in order to understand them, you need to understand the ten fetters, right? Because all of those precepts are actually helping you to eradicate the 10 fetters. So this is why we call them precepts or training guidelines rather than rules or commandments. So this is why I have another post that I will sometimes share that I say the Buddhist teachings aren't rules to follow and there's no followers in Buddhism. Instead, what a wise practitioner would do, in my view, is understand each individual precept and understand what is the real goal and the transformation of the mind that the Buddha is teaching. So that first precept about uh, not killing, and that's how it's usually translated as not killing. But there's a whole lot of other words that the Buddha shared around that first precept. What he's really doing there is he's providing you a teaching that is going to cultivate loving kindness and compassion in the mind for all beings. That's what the real goal of that precept is. For example, it's not just a rule to follow, not to kill. It's cultivating this loving kindness and compassion in the mind, eliminating anger, hatred, ill will, because if we have anger, hatred, ill will towards any beings, then it's going to produce unwholesome results for us. And one of the most unwholesome things we could ever do to another being is kill it. So that's why the five precepts are designed around each individual aspect of the mind that the Buddha is teaching to train the mind to eliminate and eradicate certain unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. So to me, dependent origination doesn't have anything to really do with the precepts. For me, what I get out of dependent origination is the whole sequence of events that occurs that creates rebirth in the world. That's why it's called dependent origination. 
how do beings originate in the world is it's dependent on all of these things. And that's how the Buddha explained why we're stuck in the cycle of rebirth as unenlightened beings is he explains it through this whole dependent origination. It's the culmination of the natural law of gamma and how ignorance leads to rebirth, aging, and death, and this whole massive amount of discontentedness. Okay, I'll, I'll investigate that further if I have other um more specific questions i'll address them to you sure and you might hear people refer to central desire sense desires sensual pleasures or sense pleasures you'll hear these different words being spoken at different times i tend to kind of standardize on a set group of words because i think it's easier for people's minds to understand the teachings and apply them so I tend to use sense desires or sensual desire, but you might hear these other words that are all pointing to the same thing, which is the mind trying to please itself and experience pleasant feelings through the six senses. That's what sensual desire is. And that's the whole craving desire attachment is the mind is craving through these six senses. It's longing, it has this strong eagerness through these six senses, wanting pleasant feelings. And that's the whole number one problem that the Buddha discovered. And that's one fetter that's in the mind, one aspect of the pollution of the mind. It's a significant one. That's why we refer to it as sense desires, sensual desires or sensual pleasures. And sexual contact is one of the most extreme, the strongest sensual desire that most people tend to have. Thank you, David. That seems to be all that we have for today. Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining our little session here to do some guided loving kindness meditation and see any questions that you guys have. Remember, as questions come up, you can put those into the Facebook group as a post. You can ask questions in any of these online classes on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday. You can send a private message to me if you'd like and ask any questions that way, or you can schedule a personal guidance session. All of this is offered openly and freely for you to be able to get guidance because all these resources that are being shared with you, the books, the audiobooks, the videos, the podcasts, all these different online classes, this is all content for you to learn and absorb based on what you feel is important for you and your practice because everybody's progressing at their own pace and then you reach out to your teacher as you need help because it's an independent journey it's an independent practice and you've got to actively work through the path to enlightenment and engage your teacher as you need and when you need and that's completely your decisions on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 18 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is the chapter that's titled, God's Creative Actions. You have free will. This is going to help you to understand how to pursue this path of liberation or enlightenment with a relationship with God, if that's what you choose, or without a relationship with God, if that's what you choose. There's no right or wrong in this. Some people prefer to not have a relationship with God and you're not required and it doesn't need to have a relationship with God in order to liberate the mind to attain enlightenment. So I'm going to teach you how to do that through 
that particular chapter and through the class on Sunday. But there are some people who prefer to have a relationship with God. But based on the teachings that they've received and other traditions, they've actually kind of really made it very difficult to have a relationship with God because there's this fear that is being taught in some communities in relationship to God. There are some communities that teach to pray and ask God for things, which is craving desire attachment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, knowing what's being taught in a lot of different communities related to God, I'm going to help you see how you can very clearly have this practice of this path to enlightenment while maintaining a relationship with God, but you're going to need to think about some things in a different way than you've probably been taught in other traditions. And if you're not interested in having a relationship with God, then that's great too. And I'll show you how to do that as well as part of our class on Sunday. So have a lovely rest of your week. If any questions come up, feel free to reach out and let me know. In the meantime, be sure to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everyone, every interaction that you have. And if you can't do that, it's better just to remain quiet so that you're not causing any harm to anyone and therefore you won't cause any harm to yourself. This will help you extinguish any unwholesome gamma that you're not putting out any harm through your intentions, speech or actions or any other way that you might cause harm in the world. So it's better to just remain quiet if you can't be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy or if you can't be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. So I'll see you in our future class. Take care. Have a lovely day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.